Now, my story is not unique. There's thousands of professionals of color who have experiences like mine. A Black Executive Perspective. Whether you're aware of it or not, it's a topic that is often avoided. We'll discuss race and how it plays a factor and how we didn't even talk about this topic because we were afraid. A Black Executive Perspective. Right now in, in the world, in my understanding of that and my perception of people inside of that, that fraternity recruits heavily for football. And I was one of two uh, brown, excuse me, people of color uh, that were in the fraternity and everyone else was uh, was was Jewish, my Jewish brethren. But again, as I remember, as I mentioned earlier, my father, who's an imam, you know, when he was in New York, friends with rabbis. Welcome to a black executive perspective podcast, a safe space where we discuss all matters related to race, especially race in corporate America. I'm your host, Tony Tidbit. And I'm your co-host, Chris P. Reed. So in today's episode, Lifestyle Synthesis, a journey of self-discovery and success. Abdul Muhammad II will discuss his journey, the ups and downs and how he overcame race poverty, and ignorance to discover his passion and unlock an exhilarating journey of self-discovery and how you too can unlock your full potential and thrive in every aspect of your life. So very excited to hear Abdul's journey. So a little bit about Abdul. Abdul Muhammad II brings over 25 years of experience as an executive leader, brand growth strategist, digital marketer, speaker, life coach, and mindfulness facilitator. As MDM Ventures founder and chief growth officer, he specializes in business and personal growth strategy. MDM's people, brand, and tech focuses on small, medium business entrepreneurs and community leaders dedicated to a social impact with technology in the health, wellness, travel, tourism, entertainment, and financial industries. For nearly 30 years, Abdul has championed the Quality Life Center of Southwest Florida, an organization that provides at-risk children with the tools they need to make a difference in arts, character, and education. They call it ACE. Over the last decade, Abdul intertwined his dedication to mindset, community, and consciousness into a daily lifestyle. As a certified breathwork coach that includes martial arts and yoga, he delivers a unique mind development mastery practice that provides a transformative lifestyle resource for those seeking personal and professional growth via mindfulness. Their motto is breathe in, let out, and create. Abdul, welcome to a Black Executive Perspective podcast, my brother. Thank you so much, Tony. Tony, excited to be here. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. Really love what you've been doing here and the bold courage it takes to really take on this topic and really just share your story and the stories of others. Well, thank you, my brother. Really appreciate it. And look, today we're going to hear your story, right, which is not unique and is going to, I know, inspire a lot of individuals. Yes, I hope so. I hope so. It's, it's inspired me. <laughs> That's what matters. <laughs> you know, you got to you got to find find it within yourself, you know, because oftentimes, especially for us out there, there's you got You got to look within and really get out there and motivate yourself and be inspired. So 
There's no question, my brother. So look, before we get started, give us a little background, man. Tell us a little bit where you're from, family. You know, give us a little warm up. Who is Abdul's before we jump into it? All right. All right. So I'm actually from Harlem, New York. And this is not the Harlem that it is nowadays with the Whole Foods and, you know, the nice brownstones where everyone wants to go. This is Harlem back in the day. I'm talking in the Reagan era. You know, <laughs> it's like you got you <laughs> crack pipes and, and, and home crackheads walking around. I don't know who I knew. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't anybody who I knew that wanted to, to stay in Harlem. Everybody wanted to get out of Harlem. Um, that's that's the Harlem that I was from. I was born in Harlem Hospital. And, uh, you know, I, I had a had a great upbringing, though, despite the the area that I was brought up. And I and I have to attribute all of that to my father, my, my family, my mother and, you know, their love and also their faith. Um, they both are very faith based individuals that instilled that in me early on. And that had a lot to do with my ability to transcend poverty and a lot of the challenges that come with that. Um, and, you know, I, I actually, their, their whole focus was on education. And my parents, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, you know, I got divorced when I was young in probably about the third grade. And uh, when they got divorced, my mom moved to New Mexico. And so I chose to go at my mom's at first. And so that kind of took me from Harlem, New York, on over to New Mexico, a small little town called Abiquiu, where there were dirt roads and coyotes and rattlesnakes, you know? So it was a, a whole different ball game from crackheads and bums to rattlesnakes and coyotes, man. So, <laughs> that, you know, that, it, that was a wake up call, I would imagine, right? <laughs> I tell you, I, you know, I had challenges at the beginning. I, I couldn't fall asleep because I was so used to hearing sirens and, you know, gunshots. And I went from that to crickets and, you know, howling animals. I couldn't sleep for a while. Um, but, you know, I ended up actually growing to appreciate the nature. And I'm glad that at an early age I was introduced to that so that I had the upbringing of, you know, the concrete jungle, which will always have a place in my heart. But also, you know, the, the, the purity of nature and really being able to root myself in, you know, the elements of the universe and the creator. And so that was something that was uh, uh, a big part of that. And actually where I am now and, and the choice that I made, you know, fast forward, I'm, I have a partner, my wife and my life partner. She's also my business partner. And about three years ago, we started on our journey of developing MDM Ventures. And what that did is really look at how we're working on creating and working with those who are seeking to have social impact as well as making money. So, you know, I didn't, don't get me wrong, I still want to make that money, but I really have in my heart through my journey have realized there's more to it than just the money. And so, you know, we really are focused on working with individuals who get that and share a similar ethos. And um, actually, you know, as I tie it back to how New Mexico opened my heart to nature about a year ago now, almost exactly, October 15th, it, it was a year where we went on what we call our digital nomad journey. And we packed up everything in Miami where I was living for the last, gosh, I don't know, over 10 years. And we packed up everything and we went on a journey to go through Central and South America 
and to live on a digital nomad life. So we've been in Honduras and Colombia and Mexico, the Cayman Islands, etc. I started learning Spanish and taking on new culture. And uh, it's just been an amazing opportunity that, uh, you know, you look at turning obstacles into opportunities as one of uh, one of my mentors, George Tinsley, uh, speaks about George Tinsley Sr., turning obstacles into opportunities. But the pandemic opened up a huge opportunity and that allowed us to be able to take on living this lifestyle where, you know, always in my heart, ever since I went to New Mexico, I had been introduced to new cultures. And so to have it where I can actually work in different cultures and be exposed to different languages, different people, and really have that as part of my lifestyle, it's just amazing. And so, you know, I'm really committed to it. It's been a year now and I'm just loving it. Let, let me ask a question here. Um, and it's interesting that you brought that about and you talked about your journey beginning in, in New York. So New York is a diaspora of so many different melting pots of cultures, peoples from all around the world. But then going to the natural setting of New Mexico, how did that diversity and in, in mindfulness help you to become who you eventually became as you grew? And was there any individual in particular that kind of inspired that that uh, belief or that confidence that you had to just jump out into this like you have? Well, that's a great question. It's a great question. And it, it really did open up the spiritual journey, not just because of being in nature, but because of who I had to be <laughs> in nature and, and learning these different things. And we didn't have television when we were there. So there wasn't this distraction. There was my neighbor, my closest neighbor, I had to get on a bike and ride at least 10 to 12 minutes to get to my closest neighbor. So it allowed me to really be in nature in a way that I had not ever before. And just sitting out there and listening to the animals, <laughs> be a part of that, going to the river and putting my feet in the river and being out there, it really just connects in a way that you don't have to have anyone lead you to really focus on your inner being. And again, my parents were both religious. They were uh, Muslim. I was born Muslim. They were Muslim converts uh, early on. And so I was raised as a Muslim and I had a very strong religious background. Although I was raised as a Muslim, my father was an imam and he led a big effort in New York that was a Unitarian effort. So he worked with rabbis, he worked with ministers and preachers in the Christian faith. And so even though I was raised Muslim, I was encouraged by my family to be an independent thinker. I had to read the Bible. I had to read the, the scriptures and the Torah, etc., and make my own decision just as they made their own decision. And so that was part of my spirituality is to be open and to be a, a constantly questioning things not only within myself and the religion and in school and everything. And I used to get in trouble because I used to always, they used to call me a smart ass, right. you know, smart, smart ass. Right. Uh, right. A, cause I was, but I also acted like that New York city kid. I'm a lot more refined. Thank goodness. As I, as I aged and matured, but back then that was a big part of my swag, you know, and really connecting with nature that really helped me. I was blessed to have great teachers uh, the first teacher, I would say, is my mother. And my mother, she is a teacher, but not only was she a teacher, but she taught me about being confident within myself. And that was huge to me. And I was, I still am, I say I was, uh, I still am a short brother. But back in the day, you know, I had a gap between my teeth. They used to say I had big ears, you know, so I was short, black and poor. 
So talk about a confidence deterrent, right? I had, I had everything stacked against me when it comes to confidence. And there wasn't a woman in the world who wanted to be with a short, poor black man. And I had to figure out confidence real quick. And my mother reflected my greatness before I knew it. And that was something that I love her for. And she has always given me that confidence in it. And, you know, I look at my father who is short and kind of looks just like me. So I blame my looks on him. And uh, <laughs> but my father was in the military. My father, when he was in the military, he went stationed in Okinawa. And while he was during that time, he got his black belt. He came back to the United States with his fourth degree black belt. And that brother had me practicing martial arts from when I was seven years old. So I learned early on, it's not about the size, but there's a whole lot more than size when you have belief and you use your brain. And when you add that to really taking on how I can be physical, right? It's not about the height. I looked at what my advantages were by being a short person. I was quicker. I was able to take ownership of what I could control, right? I could work out. I could be doing my push-ups, et cetera. So even though I was short, I was a bad man. And I learned technique and I learned from my father. So between my mother and father, those were the first teachers who taught me, be confident no matter what, focus on the things that you can control and take action to have and be whatever it is that you want to be. And that to me was the first teachers I was blessed with. Again, I owe a lot of that to my family, to my parents. And they also taught me to be an independent thinker. So my dad and my mom will tell you, oh boy, you're giving me credit now. But back then you were just, you didn't listen to anything. And so they raised me to be an independent thinker. And so that independence and also the confidence that they gave me. And then I feel like the juxtaposition of being a city, city life, being a hardcore city boy, and then going out to New Mexico and dealing with rattlesnakes and learning how to shoot and ride horses. I was just a bad brother because I go back to the city. I knew how to ride horses and I knew all kinds of things that my city boys didn't know. And then, you know, I would go to the, to the country and I had that city swag. So it was always something that I was different and found the power and ownership and being different. It takes us back to the race thing, right? And so taking ownership of that gave me confidence. You make me want to go do a walkabout. I mean, you really found yourself out there. <laughs> yeah. So listen, buddy, I mean, you got so much energy here. Me and Chris is like, where do we jump in? Because my man, I mean, he, you, 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 and we ain't even got started yet. This is the warm up. <laughs> All right. This is the preamble. This is the preamble, right? So, but that's, this is good because, you know, obviously our, we're, we're going to, we're going to go on a ride with you, buddy. And you've already started that ride. So, real quick, before you take us all the way back, because I mean, your journey just in terms of like Chris was saying, the preamble. Uh, is very like I, there's I mean just hearing some of it there's a million questions that come to mind but just tell us real quickly MDM Ventures you spoke a little bit about it but tell us now where you are now and and the success and how you're transforming lives and then Chris will ask you some stuff to back up where this all began sounds good yes at MDM Ventures really we provide essentially three main what I call products. I mean, a lot of people challenge that and they say it's services, but we like to productize things for a lot of different reasons we can get into later. But when you look at what we sell as a product, the first product we sell is strategy. And I focus on growth and profitability. So we work with both people and brands and support them in their growth and in their trajectory. So 
no matter whether you're a person that's looking for personal development, and we work specifically with entrepreneurs and executives, or you're a small to medium-sized business that's looking for growth and profitability, we come in and we provide strategy. We provide what's called fractional C-suite services. And so companies that are typically small and medium-sized businesses, they oftentimes don't have the budget for a high-paid chief marketing officer or a chief digital officer or a chief strategy officer, right? Usually you're paying anywhere between $200,000 to $500,000 for those C-suite positions if you're looking at corporate America. And I've had those jobs paying those uh, uh, salaries as I was the, <laughs> the chief digital officer of RBB Communications and the director of social and digital at Zimmerman Advertising, a big billion dollar ad agency. And so what we look to provide is for access to businesses and business owners to have access to that level of skill set, but at a fraction of the cost. They don't need a full-time person either, right? And so what we're able to do is for someone like me who's seasoned and has been in the background and has, has the expertise uh, to get paid and has worked for those large companies, you can now hire us for a fraction of the cost for maybe 20 hours a month. Because at that level, with that level of firepower, that typically is all you need. So that brings us to service number two, fractional C-suite services and clients hire us to be their chief marketing officer, their chief growth officer, their chief digital officer, et cetera. And over my tenure, I've had the benefit of mentoring some amazing talent as I've come up through these corporations and worked at these ad agencies. And a lot of these talented individuals, they are off on their own. They're working as consulting firms. Again, with the pandemic, that has opened up opportunity for them to do consulting. And I also am one that really focuses on people. And so I, I've got some really good friends that I've met through the years. And they all love working with me and I love working with them. So I've got a Rolodex of talent. And when these small and medium-sized businesses call and they need someone who's a digital ninja, well, I can pick up my phone and say, we got somebody for you to come 10 hours a month and put together a digital strategy that's going to help grow your business by, and I'm going to use what was Grant Cardone, 10X, you know, right. <laughs> we, we can 10X your company, right? But we can look at the numbers and we really look at numbers. I'm a geek. At, at the end of the day, I love stats and numbers and we really get down to that. So we analyze those numbers. We figure out a strategy based on what those business goals and objectives are. And then either myself or the team, depending on what the needs are after we, we put together that strategic assessment, and then we come up with that strategy and then we manage the execution or the implementation of that strategy. So that's the fractional C-suite services, that product we provide. And then the third product we provide is executive coaching and training. And that executive coaching and training comes in different forms. We typically work with the owners or again, the C-suite executives within that company. And we look at it from two different places. I operate both from the skill set and the mindset. Skill set and the mindset. And that's a big differentiator with the coaching and training we provide. Oftentimes, most coaching and training focuses on skill set. Now, I'm a firm believer that no matter how good your skill set is, your mind ain't right and your heart is not aligned then your results are not going to be optimized. And so we look at one of the first things is getting at the core of who the individual is 
understanding the blockage that they may have for peak performance. And then, as you mentioned early on, Tony, I have core competency. I'm specialized. I'm certified in breath work. I've been in the neuroscience part of it. I utilize breath work so that I can understand the nervous system and how we can self-regulate for peak performance. One of the major challenges for executives is that they get stressed out and they get a lot of anxiety and it depletes their ability to be productive. And so we live in a high-paced environment now where everyone expects you to be on that phone and answering things and responding to things. And you've got these different energies that are pulling at you. And so with the executive coaching and training that we provide, it is holistic. We work not only on the skill set, but more importantly, on the mindset and the heart set. And we implement different strategies and tactics to optimize peak performance. And you know what, my friend? So, I mean, number one, it's so... Uh, gratifying to have you on, you know, a black executive perspective podcast, your energy, your intellect, it's just, I mean, you're blowing us all away. Really love it. And anybody who's been around you, um, you know, that energy is very infectious. Okay. And you and I met, was it 10, 12 years ago in Miami? I think that's when you had, I think you had sold your company yes, and you're working for Zimmerman at that time. And we met, um, and yes, we sir. hit it off like immediately. I think, didn't we even go on a yacht together? Didn't we do a cruise or something? Uh, I think it was South Florida yeah, we cruise. cruise. Yeah, 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 yeah. We on a cruise. We hung out. And yeah. uh, you remember that, right? Yeah. Here's the thing, though. You know, what you're, yeah. where yeah. you are today, um, and I took some notes here, and you, you really, you broke it down. Last people, brand technology. And I want to I focus on the last two obstacles into, into, into opportunity and skill set and mindset. Now, listen, you're chatting today and obviously you're helping, um, changing a lot of lives, right? You talked about the skill set part. Everybody focuses on that, but you hit it right on the head. It's all about the attitude and the mindset, right? Coming from Harlem, growing up there, and you just spoke to it a minute ago, being Muslim, um, being poor. Um, and then I'm going to let you finish off the other things in terms of, you know, the college you went to, you know, the fraternities. You know. Tell us a little bit, how did you start from there and then get to where you are today? Because I can imagine, and obviously it's what our title of our episode today is, right? A Journey of Self-Discovery and Success. So back us up a little bit and tell us, you know, that journey – that you went through and how you ended up where you are today. And a lot of it, I would imagine, had to do with the mindset standpoint as well. You know, again, I have to really give a lot of credit to my parents and the model that they gave me. My parents were no joke, man. I tell you, you know, when I was young and I was in school, I had to read. Every single day. Again, we didn't, they didn't allow me to watch TV. Instead, they gave me books. And they focused on education. And I was frustrated and angry because I was poor. And they always let me know that that has nothing to do with it. Your wealth comes from your contribution and your mind. And if you educate yourself, you have value that no one can ever take from you. So that was the first sort of thing that I feel 
created this trajectory that allowed me to have great success is my parents' emphasis on education and their unwavering commitment to make me read. <laughs> and quite honestly, it was frustrating and I used to couldn't stand my parents because even though we were poor, they had, I don't understand how, and I, I love them for it, even though I, could, I couldn't stand it when I was young because we were poor, but they always put me in the best schools, right? We, when we moved to New Mexico, my mom, how she got there, she was a teacher and she was a teacher in a private school. So that's how I got in there because she was a teacher. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to be in that school, getting the right. best schools. And right. so the, the choices that she made, she sacrificed so that we could have the education. So that's right. And so, again, that example of my mother, you know, and the focus on education and the focus that really shifted my mindset and opened me up. The other part of it, I remember when I was in high school, I made it to the basketball team and my dad was like, I told my dad, you know, I went to a school that was a white school, predominantly white school. So I was thrust into that. And the friends that I made, they lived in the suburbs, man. And so they had money, they had pools and they had cars and they had all that kind of stuff that we didn't have, but those are my friends. So talk about the resentment. When you said resentment, like what did you mean by resentment? I resented the fact that they didn't have no money and that they weren't- Your, your parents. Give me the things that my friends had. That's right. right. That's right. That's right. That's right. You, I'm here and I'm seeing all these rich kids doing their thing and I'm, I'm there, but I'm not able to really be there like them. And that, that hurt me. That was hard. That was a hard uh, pill to swallow as a young, as a young jit, you know? And, uh, you know, in particular, I remember my dad, I made it on the basketball team and everybody on the basketball team had to wear the same sneakers. You know, it's not like he was picking on it. Everybody had to wear the same Converse with the blue check that went with, went with the uniform and all this stuff. And those sneakers, I remember at the time, they cost like $40, which, I mean, that's a great deal But back in the day. And my dad, my, I, <laughs> my dad was like, yeah, he was like, $40? He was like, you got a choice. You can't play on the basketball team. Or you got to come up with the $40. I was like, he goes, yeah, I can give, I think it was $20. He said, I can give you $20, but you got to come up with the other money. And I was like, nobody else on the team got to come up with the other money. Their parents give them the shoes so that they can play ball. This is like one of those things that I'm frustrated. That shifted my mindset at an early age, A, to independence, and B, to the fact that if I want something, I got to make that stuff happen by myself. Ain't nobody, even your mom and your dad, they're going to give me food. They're going to give me shelter. They're going to educate me, but they're not going to give me these extra perks, et cetera. And I made up my mind at that time. I'm not going to be poor. I'm not going to be for want. And I went and got a job. I worked at Winn-Dixie. I worked at Chess King. I had two jobs throughout high school so that I could go and hang out and do the things that I wanted to do. That shifted my mindset. I remember my dad, when I was in 10th grade, he made me read Think and Grow Rich. Great book. Black Choice. Great by book. Dr. Dennis, Dr. Dennis Kimbrough. Kimbrough. Exactly. He's Excellent Amazing. Book. Dr. Dennis Kimbrough. And it's funny now, because fast forward, Dr. Dennis Kimbrough is my client. He's been a client of mine for three years. Oh, wow. And I always love, like, I, I owe so much to him. That's right. In 10th grade, and my dad made me read the book and write a report on it, et cetera. But that book opened my mind in a way that, I mean, again, to this day, I'm giving homage to it. So when you ask, you know, what was, was the mindset shift? I, I have to attribute a lot of that 
again, to my parents and the faith that they gave me and that experience. But they also didn't just tell me, hey, I'm going to give you $20. They gave me, they educated me, right? It's like, you know, you hear, don't give them fish, teach them how to fish, right? And so with these books and with this education and allowing me access to do that, I was able to A, gain the independence, but the mindset was planted early on in me to be able to do that. And I knew my parents were like, look, we ain't got no money to go to school to, to send you to college. And so if you want to go to college, boy, you better get scholarship or you start saving your money right now. And so from then on, that reality, I knew. And again, I know this sounds bad, but at the time I was motivated to get out of my parents' house. I wanted to get out of my dad's house. I wanted to I wanted to have my independence. And so I knew college, boy, otherwise you stay, you stay at home. Right. So <laughs> and so that that forced me to do really well in school. And so I was almost a straight A school. I graduated high school with a 4-2 GPA. I got a full academic scholarship to University of Florida. And so that was what kind of set me on that trajectory. Again, you know, that book, Think and Grow Rich, Dr. Dennis Kimbrough. I think every student should read that early on in the game and really take that on. And I think that that motivated me. It gave me not just the motivation and an inspiration, but it also gave me straight up tangible tactics and what to do and how to get there. And then it focused me on my education. And again, that's something that no one can take from you. And I had the ability, remember, I'm gonna say it again, because this is one of the themes that I teach all the time in lifestyle synthesis, focus on the things that you can control. And I could control my education and what I learned. I could control whether I can get an A in school. I could control, and I knew that if I get A's in school, then guess what? I'm going to college. And if I go to college, then guess what? I'm going to get a good job. And so I believed that. And that was all I needed to shift my mindset and focus me on education so that I got the grades that I needed in order to get the academic scholarship, regardless of whether my parents had the financial ability to pay or not, that allowed me to go to the University of Florida, which was, I give go Gators, great school, and allowed me to get the education that set me up for my success. Buddy, I got to say this real quick because I, I, I'm captivated by your story, uh, but I just want to throw this plug in because um, it's a it's a book that you just spoke about that I still read today, Think and Grow Rich. And I remember when I first somebody gave it to me years, I'm talking about years ago, when I first tried to read it, it, it was d- difficult because I didn't it, I, it, I didn't connect with it. The book was written by Napoleon Hill back in the 1930s, I believe it was. OK. Mm-hmm. However, the point I'm trying to make when I, fi- I went back and read it again and then it just I don't know, it just where I was in my life at that time. It just resonated. OK. But here's the kicker. The reason I want to bring it up is because you became exactly what the book teaches. OK. You thought it. And it became a reality and you became rich out of it. You put your mind that says, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to focus on the things I can control. I'm going to focus on getting a good education by regard. You didn't say, oh, I got a a lisp or, you know, I'm not smart in math. This is what I'm going to focus on. Okay. And you got exactly the reality that you saw in your mind. So for our audience here. If you have not read that book by Napoleon Hill, is the original one, and then Think and Grow Rich, A Black Choice by Dennis Kimbrough, please pick those up and definitely read them. But more importantly, study them, 
highlight the different type of paragraphs because you will not be disappointed. So I really, Abdul, I really appreciate you bringing that up. So, hey, buddy, tell us, I remember you telling me a little bit a while ago about, you know, you going to college and, you know, um, joining a fraternity, being Muslim. Talk, tell, tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, it's a funny story because I was definitely not one that myself or any of my friends or anyone who knew me would ever think that I would join a fraternity, uh, let alone a Jewish fraternity. Uh, hey, my Jewish brethren, I love them. They, I mean, I, 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 I can't thank what that experience has done for me and who I am. And especially even now in light of what's going on right now in, in the world and my understanding of that and my perception of people inside of that. That fraternity recruits heavily for football. And I was one of two uh, brown, excuse me, people of color uh, that were in the fraternity and everyone else was, uh, was, was Jewish, my Jewish brethren. But again, as I remember, as I mentioned earlier, my father, who's an imam, you know, when he was in New York, friends with rabbis, I went to bar mitzvahs. I, so I was, I was raised understanding and, and, and having uh, compassion and empathy and an affinity towards Jewish people. And so when I saw that as a fraternity and my uncle, who is an Omega, you know, you got the people of color fraternities, uh, the traditional fraternities that everybody expects me to be a part of, even to this day, they're like, oh, you're in a fraternity. They right away assume it's the Omegas, you know, uh, Kappas, etc. the black fraternities. They actually... Uh, uh, what is it, nominated me to be the pledge class president of all things. And so that's why I ended up staying. I'm like, man, all of these people, and it was, it was like 40 of us that, that were, got the bid and were part of it. And then they chose me out of all of these people to be the pledge class president. And so when I got chosen by the people, I felt like my own integrity. I couldn't just quit and be like, nah, peace. It was great having barbecue and playing football with y'all, but I don't want to really be a part of this. And that, that, that's what got me to stick. And I'm so glad because had I not gotten nominated to be the Prejcast president, I would never have continued with that fraternity. And fast forward, when I started my company, my first business, Anatron Media Technologies, back in 1998, it was a web development company, Anatron Media Technologies. The first quarter of a million dollars of business that I ever generated in my life from my business came from my Jewish fraternity brothers who literally picked up the phone. I mean, these brothers, they, they take care of you. Picked up the phone, they all their families own businesses and their cousins own businesses and, they, and they're just like, look, this is my fraternity brother. He's got a great product he wants to come talk to you about. And they were just literally just opening doors for me. I would go in, I wouldn't have been considered otherwise, especially again, a black man named Abdul Muhammad. <laughs> <laughs> but they gave me a chance because my Jewish fraternity brothers said that I was the man and they trusted him. They let it in. And then, of course, you know, I, I'm blessed with knowing what I'm talking about as well and having a good product. And that allowed me to be successful. But that was the base of what my college experience was and a big part of, you know, a lot of uh, the foundation of my business career. That is awesome, man. That yeah. is a great story. And it, and it goes to show, because I would imagine, you know, I remember growing up and obviously, you know, my mother was, uh, um, uh, you know, she liked classical music. She liked rock and roll. She liked pop music. And she taught us, 
you know, that never let anybody put you in a box, right? Like whatever you like. And so, you know, when I, I love rock and roll music, I used to listen to it, Led Zeppelin, Moody Blues, whole nine yards. But then my friends, my black friends would tease me, right? Because they'll be like, oh, what do you like that white stuff for? Blah, 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 right? So, and I had to deal with, you can't like the music you like? I mean, I gotta, you know, what what is this? I would imagine being in the Jewish fraternity, you know, which for you, you were like, these my boys, I'm 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 in it, right? But I can imagine that some of your your your, your black friends and stuff probably was looking at you sideways. All right, like what's going on? And and, and we gotta stop that. <laughs> we have to stop that, right? At the end of the day, it's whatever turns you on, right? Regardless of the color, race, ethnicity, background, sexual orientation, whatever. If that's what you like, that's what you like, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. So thanks for sharing that story, my friend. Let, let me ask you a question, though. Was your pops cool from the jump or did he, did he feel like you got it, like everything that he had been doing and sewing into you with his example resonated when you joined the fraternity? Or did he have an eyebrow raised because he knew he was going to have to hear from your uncle? <laughs> That's a great question. I'm going to be real. I didn't tell my I didn't tell my family at the beginning. I didn't I didn't tell him. I didn't tell him for a long time. I didn't tell him for a long time. And then when I told him I was in a fraternity, I didn't really say, hey, it's a Jewish fraternity. I just said, I joined this fraternity, you know, and the first thing was like, you know, uh, okay, well, you know, as long as you don't let your mind, you know, my father's always been supportive of my independence and his concern is always stay true to who you are. Don't let anybody change you. Don't let money change you. Don't let, he's, he's, he's always been about that above all else. Um, you know, but, it, 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 you know, I, I, I think that my, my uncle was probably the one that was a little bit more uh, like because he's my favorite uncle, man. I love him. He played football. He's get, running back. How they get you? You know, <laughs> right. Omega. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Okay. He's like, you okay. did what? Okay. You know, yeah. like, and I'm going to be honest, when I was younger, I was like, if I ever were to pledge, it would be an Omega because that's, that's my family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think it was a little bit of that. But. Yeah, a little bit of that. But once I explained, you know, um, you know, I know all the Omegas already and they're my friends. And, you know, this is about expanding and expanding who I am, expanding network and growing and being someone who they can learn from. You know, I always looked at myself as that bridge. And so take it before that. Again, I mentioned when I was in high school, we moved down to Fort Myers, Florida. I don't know if you guys know about Fort Myers, Florida, but it's a very conservative place. Naples. Naples. As I mentioned. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. You know about it. That's right. And so, yes, you know, again, one of, I was 60, 60 of, of, of you know, people of color. And so I experienced that sort of uh, some hardcore racism early on. And Tony, just mm-hmm. like you, man, I love that Leffler. And I used to listen to you know, Nirvana, Def Leppard, and like Bon Jovi, and like, yo, your boy was a grunge cat, man. I used to love all that kind of stuff, man. And, you know, and and at the same time, yo, I pick up the mic and freestyle like a New York Hall of Kid, Hall of World. And so I was this weird thing that, you know, when I came here, you know, my, my parents, because of the education, I was very articulate. And so they're like, man, the black kids really didn't like me a lot because, A, I lived kind of in the in the suburbs in a sterile high school. And the out of the, the 60 people of color in my high school, it was 55 were bust from the projects, the Dunbar community. 
And I didn't live there. I lived in, in, the, in the suburbs where the, where, the, where the white kids live. And there was only five of us who came from there. So there was resentment and this, you know, difficulty to fit in with the black kids, the people, the kids of color, as well as the white kids who are like, man, who's this New York kid, swag, black man, funny name, Abdul Muhammad. So I really felt like I didn't fit in anywhere. Right. And so that really at an early age had me to really just take ownership of who I was and give get get a, an attitude of, man, I don't give up about y'all. Right. Otherwise, I would just be living a small, scared, simple life. And that was not me. You know, so I figured it out early on and I was very independent. The first year that I was there, my freshman year in high school was very, very tough. I dealt with a lot of racism etc. Uh, when I moved down there. I mean, I remember when I was in, in the, the lunchroom and I went away to get something to put my tray away and I came back to my seat at the table and I saw a piece of paper and drawn on the piece of paper was, what's the last thing uh, N-word says when he falls down a well? You know, so I had stuff like that happen. Um, again, you know, the, the, I was blessed. I knew how to dance and I had this New York swag and there were some Caucasian women, girls, who were dancers and they, they knew I knew how to dance. So they asked me to teach them and help them choreograph this dance. These girls happened to be some of the hottest girls in the school. And they were white girls who were rich white girls. And so one of these girls, I ended up building a relationship with. And so that made everybody in the school jealous. She was older than me. Right. She was a senior and I was in ninth grade. And so right away that took me from being this non-popular, short, poor black kid to like, who is this dude that's dating the, one of the hottest white girls that's in our school, you know? And so that really put me on the map. And my sophomore year, I was voted homecoming king my sophomore year. So I went from being this black so-and-so, last thing it end says when he falls down the well, dude, to being the homecoming king at a sterile high school. You know, and having friends with the most popular kids and playing sports, et cetera. And so I really took ownership, gave me confidence and allowed me to double down on who I was. And I knew that if I wasn't accepted by this person or that person, just own who I am, own who I am. Right. And that allowed me to create. And that was one of the lessons that shifted my mindset and empowered me early on. Let me ask a, a, a poignant question. I think that the audience would love is you've obviously embraced being an eclectic guy, right? Like you got a lot of diversity and just your own self-awareness and personality. Um, as a strategist, one of the things that I find it hard to mitigate as an athlete and that you have an athletic background and things of that nature. How do you stay away from and We talk about this as fans of sports. The analytics, right? So you got these nerds that's engineers and they do algorithms on computers. They, the analytics say you should kick it here or you should shoot threes or you should. How do you, in what you use for your clientele, mitigate what you know in your gut is real game and what the analytics say? Are you a slave to the analytics, so to speak? How do you kind of navigate that and how should we approach that personally in our lives? That's a great question. It's a great question. And so I, I really approach it by gathering. I gather all of the intel. And, I, and I'm glad you brought it back to the sports analysis, right? <laughs> I used to sit and watch the tapes of the games. I used to watch the past games of me playing. I watched who we're going to play, and I analyze it, and I get in there. But at the end of the day, like Mike Tyson says, like, <laughs> that whole game plan will change when you get punched in the face. And so the I mouth. let my gut lead. <laughs> I let you get punched in the mouth. That's right. And so <laughs> I do everything I can to prepare. 
Seriously, I do. And I, I get into the stats. I get into this, that, and the other. And at the end of the day, before I do anything, and this goes back to my belief in the faith, I sit with it. And now my spirituality has transcended my religiality, my religiosity. Although back in the day, it used to be prayer. You pray before you do everything. You pray before you eat. You pray before you play a game. You pray before... And now I sit and I meditate. I just take some moments of silence and I bring in the energy that I want to create and I embody that. And I allow that with all of the knowledge and all of the prep that gives me confidence. You know, it's like, hey, you did all of the prep. You, you did what you could do. And right now, there's nothing, nothing, nothing that's more important to you being present in this moment right now. There's nothing more critical than that. And when you're present in the moment, and I bring what's called mindfulness to it, which is simply non-judgment and curiosity. And so while I'm there, I'm always curious and I have non-judgment. So as much as I can study, you get there to the game and then all of a sudden, oh man, the quarterback who you've been studying, how he played, he got injured the day before he's not playing. So now all of that study, guess what? You got to show up, bro. You got to play, right? And so I've always understood that. Um, and, and, and so even though I've always studied and been one who gets the A's and this, that, and the other, there's nothing more that I follow more than being present in the moment and following my gut. That's awesome, buddy. Final thoughts, man. So look, you've lived, uh, uh, and you still are living, uh, fast, fantastic life, right? A lot of energy attitude. What do you, what can you tell the audience who, there's people who will probably listen to this and they're going through a hard time or they're in a financial situation or they don't feel good about themselves or they don't think they can be able to, to live the, the dreams that they have in their life. Uh, they're thinking that their circumstances really has more influence over them versus what they can do themselves. Talk to those individuals right now. Tell them what you know, what advice you would give them in terms of being able to, to live an exhilarating life? The first thing I would say is that you can get anywhere from here. And that's, that's really where it starts, is this undying belief that you have the power inside of you. You can get anywhere from here. No matter what your circumstance is, there's something that you can do to make it better. And it starts with having that belief. That belief drives your mindset. Once you have that mindset, then it allows you to take action. Most people who are struggling in a specific circumstance is because they have fear of doing the unknown. They have fear of something. And so the antidote to fear is action. <laughs> the antidote to fear is action. And when you take time to really get clear, right, get clear within yourself, this inner exploratory, then you have what I would call the ability to see and have vision to where you want to go. And a lot of people that I work with, they're like, man, I want to do something. I want to get somewhere. I just don't know. They just don't know. Right. And so for those people, I would say that you have to choose powerfully. A lot of life is about unlearning. Right. And we spend a lot of time trying to learn and accumulate. But I suggest this. A lot of it is about unlearning and choosing powerfully who you want to be versus who you've been told to be, who you've been conditioned to be, who society is trying to make you. And to 
unlearn all of the things that you have been taught, to take ownership of who you really are. It's a process in lifestyle synthesis where you go through choosing powerfully a way of being, who you are. You know how, Tony, you said, man, your energy and how you show up. And this is because it's intentional. My life is about being a certain way that no one can take from me. This allows me to be fully empowered. And I chose what's called nine seeds. And those of you who are interested in unlocking your full potential and going through this process as an executive or through your business, it is, it's, a, it's where you understand your purpose and you pick values for yourself. You've got to choose who you want to be. And I believe in these nine principles that I live my life for. The first is fully self-expressed. We are all put here on the planet to be something. I can never be Tony. I can never be Chris. No matter how great you all may be, I will never be anything but who I am. And the more time I spend and energy I spend on becoming me, being fully self-expressed and uncovering what that is, that's power, right? The next thing is choosing to be empowered. You can choose to be empowered no matter what. I was poor, but I found access to things that I could control, which then strengthened that muscle of being empowered. And so full self-expression, being empowered, no matter what happens, you can see things in an empowered context. Things don't happen to me. They happen for me, regardless of whether I get that or understand that initially. But if I take time and breathe in and think about what's going on, I then shift it to an empowered context. And then inspired. What is it in life that inspires me, right? What am I inspired by and how can I be inspiration to others? Because that creates this energetic vibration that feeds me. The next thing is love, infinite love, not just love for other people, but love more importantly for myself, right? You may not have, you know, I looked at all oh, white people and this people, that they don't love me. You got to love yourself, when you love yourself, you find that, oh man, there's a whole bunch of white people who love me too. And there's a whole bunch of fine women who love me too. The moment I got out of myself and started hating on myself because I'm short, thinking to myself, man, shoot, no hot girls like short dudes, so no one loves me, right? But the moment you get outside of that, find the infinite love for yourself, then you start to grow. And so again, you have infinite love. The next principle for me is infinite fun. Life is just too darn short not to have fun. And if you ain't having fun, then guess what? Nobody want to be around nobody who ain't having fun, right? And you got to find that fun by yourself. When I was out in New Mexico, I ain't have no friends that were sitting. I had to go out and find fun within nature, connect with nature, see the light reflecting. How did I find inspiration in that, right? So that's infinite, infinite love, then ultimate fun. You got to find that ultimate fun within yourself. The next thing is wealth and abundance. Be wealth and abundance. And that goes back to Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, to find in you that wealth and abundance. Remember, wealth finds those because you are valuable. So find out what your skill set is, what your heart set is. And then when you embrace that, you start to be valued. And then the money is going to come. And so that's what you need to embody as wealth and abundance. The next is you got to have gratitude. Because no matter where you are, right, even when I was on food stamps, stomping roaches in Harlem, New York, in the projects, there was things that I was grateful for. That shifts the actual chemicals that are in your body. It shifts. You start to release dopamine and serotonin, these positive vibrations. 
that are in your body just by being grateful, by being gratitude. So you got to bring some gratitude to it. And then from gratitude, you got to be in integrity. You got to be in integrity with yourself. When you're in integrity with your word and you honor your word, this starts to create this super force field around you, right? This integrity within yourself. And the last part is creativity. You got to take ownership of being the master creator within your life. And that's creativity. So I went through nine principles that I would give to anyone to live a powerful life. And again, I'll run through those nine. I call them my nine seeds. I'll start real quick again. It's living fully self-expressed, empowered, inspired, infinite love, ultimate fun, wealth and abundance, gratitude, integrity, and creativity. And if you're looking for that, take on being those nine seeds for yourself and you will be reflected in all and all the people who come across you are going to feel that vibration. And when you're putting off that beacon, it's like a satellite, man. You start to attract all of those people who are vibrating in that same energy. They start to come to you and people who ain't on that vibration. Guess what? They start to fall away. You start to have a little bit more ease and space in your life. You know, that's right, buddy. You you preach today. Hey, buddy, I'm fired up, right? If you are not fired up by listening to this episode, then, you know, what's that old saying? Les Brown said, you know, most people don't don't get buried to their after 65. They're laying their greatness unexpressed in their lives. They're dead, but not used up yet. Right. So my man, my brother, we really appreciate you sharing the energy, the thought process. You left nine great principles for not only the audience, but Chris, myself, Double A, to make sure that we abide by. This has been really, really awesome, man. I thank you for coming here, Abdul Muhammad II, and talking about and sharing with us a lifestyle synthesis, right? A journey of self-discovery and success. And buddy, if we looked up the word success, we would see your picture underneath it. So thank you immensely for what you've done today. This has just been awesome. Chris, final word? No, the only thing I would say is, is there any way in which we could enrich your life like you've enriched ours and our folks? Uh, how can we help you? What, what do we need to do to make this cycle continue of greatness that you've generated? Well, thank you, Chris, for that, that, that question. For me right now, I'm looking to grow my business. So anyone that you know out there who has who is an entrepreneur or an executive that is inspired, that wants to have that message, that wants to get some coaching so that they can also have that creativity or any businesses who are looking to grow, who need a chief growth officer, chief marketing officer, chief digital officer, send them my way. I'd love to work with them. And that right now would be a huge contribution as I'm trying to grow and expand the brand and the company. Thank you all so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure sharing my story. I love what it is that you're doing, inspiring others, man, and for having this platform for people like me. Much love, much appreciation. Well, thank you, my friend. Thank you, my brother. And real quickly, I think it's time for Tony's Tidbit. So we're going to go into the tidbit today. And I'll be honest with you, we had a ton of tidbits for my brother Abdul. So, but let me put the one tidbit that I have together based on this conversation. And my man, you talked about a lot, but this is by Calvin Coolidge. Uh, nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent would not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men and women with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination are lo- alone are omnipotent. The slogan, press on, has solved and always will solve the problems 
of the human race. And that is by Calvin Coolidge. And if anybody embodies that, that tidbit, that quote, is our brother here, Abdul Muhammad II, coming from the streets of Harlem to the, 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 the coyotes of New Mexico, to Florida, and to guess what, building a great business and touching lives wherever he goes. So again, thank you, Abdul Muhammad, for this great uh, a session today, buddy. Very energetic. We got a lot of it too. And thank you for, you know, attending another episode of a Black Executive Perspective podcast. Really appreciate you joining. Again, come to our website, sign up for updates, leave your email address. So we're going to be launching a, a, new, a monthly newsletter soon. Give us a rating and review wherever you are watching or listening to this podcast. And if you haven't thus far and you really enjoy the content, you want to help others be able to listen and be able to be affected by what we're bringing together, especially with guests like Abdul Muhammad II, please subscribe. That's going to help us be able to reach more individuals. So for my esteemed, energetic, motivational, inspirational guests, Abdul Muhammad II, my fabulous co-host, Chris Reed II. For our executive producer, Double A, I'm Tony Tidbit. We're out. Come back and join us and let's talk about it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Tony Tidbit, a Black Executive Perspective, and for joining in today's conversation. With every story we share, every conversation we foster, and every barrier we address, we can ignite the sparks that bring about lasting change. And this carries us one step closer to transforming the face of corporate America. If today's episode resonated with you, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share this episode with your circle, and with your support, we can reach more people and tell more stories. 